This is the Witnesses of History podcast, presented by Jeff Longley. Hello and welcome to another edition of Witnesses for History. And we are on the 5th of December, this edition. And we have two stories about railways and one in between about Louis Napoleon in France. But we're going to start on the 5th of December 1957 when there was a train disaster in Lewisham. This report from Daily Telegraph reporters. Between 30 and 40 people were killed and many others injured and trapped in blinding fog in London last night when three trains crashed on and under a flyover bridge on the Mid-Kent line 200 yards on the Lewisham side of St John's Station. The accident happened shortly after 6 o'clock. A fast steam train bound from Cannon Street to Ramsgate ran into the back of a stationary diesel electric which was on the way to Hayes, Kent from Charing Cross near the bridge. A carriage forced upwards by the impact hit the bridge as the third train was passing over it. The bridge collapsed onto a wrecked coach underneath. Two of the carriages in this train, the 522 Holborn Viaduct to Dartford, hung over the bridge but no casualties were reported in them. The trains were crowded, all being full of city and West End workers and Christmas shoppers. Under the light of flood lamps, firemen, police, doctors and people from houses nearby worked among the tangled wreckage, bodies covered by red ambulance blankets or white and grey ones from the houses lay beside the track. The worst scenes were under the iron flyover bridge. The dead hung from the wreckage inextricably until the bridge could be jacked up. Arc lengths lit the fearful scene, throwing the forms of rescuers into harsh relief against the dark background through the murky fog of smashed coaches. As they groped through the wreckage and brought out the bodies, the rescuers themselves burst into tears. The following day, the paper reported, The death toll has risen by last night to 92. The number of seriously injured was given as 107 and slightly injured 67. All day yesterday, wreckage teams toiled in difficult conditions to free bodies in the wreckage of the coaches under the 500-tonne collapsed flyover bridge. Just over 100 years earlier, on the 4th of December 1851, Victor Hugo reports on Louis Napoleon's troops subduing Paris. Louis was the president of the Second Republic and had made himself Emperor Napoleon III by a coup d'etat on the 2nd of December, defeating the Republicans in subsequent street fighting in Paris. Here is Victor Hugo's report. From 12 to 2 o'clock there was in this enormous city given over to the unknown an indescribable and fierce expectation. All was calm and awe-striking. The regiments and the limbered batteries quitted the Faubourg and stationed themselves noiselessly around the boulevards, not a cry in the ranks of the soldiery. An eyewitness said, The soldiers marched with quite a jaunty air. On the Quai de Ferronnerie, heaped up with regiments ever since the morning of the 2nd, there now only remained a post of municipal guards. 
Everything ebbed back to the centre. The people, as well as the army, the silence of the army, had ultimately spread to the people. They watched each other. Each soldier had three days' provisions and six packets of cartridges. It has since transpired that at this moment 10,000 francs were daily spent in brandy for each brigade. Towards one o'clock, Magnon went to the Hotel de Ville, and the reserve limbered under his own eyes and did not leave until all the batteries were ready to march. Certain suspicious preparations grew more numerous. Towards noon, the state workmen and the hospital corps had established a species of huge ambulance at number two, Faubourg Montmartre. A great heap of litters was piled up there. What's all this for? asked the crowd. At two o'clock, five brigades, those of Corte, Bourgogne, Conrobert, Dulac and Rebel, five batteries of artillery, 16,400 men, infantry and cavalry, lancers, coursers, grenadiers, gunners, were echeloned without any ostensible reason between the Rue de la Paix and the Faubourg Poissonnaire. Pieces of cannon were pointed at the entrance of every street. There were 11 in position on the Boulevard Poissonnaire alone. The foot soldiers had their guns to their shoulders, the officers their swords drawn. What did all this mean? It was a curious sight, well worth the trouble of seeing, and on both sides of the pavements, on all the thresholds of the shops, from all the stories of the houses, an astonished, ironical and confiding crowd looked on. Little by little, nevertheless, this confidence diminished and irony gave place to astonishment. Astonishment changed to stupor. Those who have passed through that extraordinary minute will not forget it. It was evident that there was something underlying all this, but what? Profound obscurity. Can one imagine Paris in a cellar? People felt as though they were beneath a low ceiling. They seemed to be walled up in the unexpected and the unknown. They seemed to perceive some mysterious will in the background, but after all, they were strong. They were the Republic. They were Paris. What was there to fear? Nothing. And they cried, down with Bonaparte! The troops continued to keep silence, but the swords remained outside their scabbards and the lighted matches of the cannons smouldered at the corners of the streets. The cloud grew blacker every minute, heavier, more silent. The thickening of the darkness was tragical. One felt the coming crash of a catastrophe and the presence of a villain, snake-like treason, writhed through during this night and none can foresee where the downward slide of a terrible design will stop when events are on a steep incline. What was coming out of this thick darkness? Suddenly, at a given signal, a musket shot being fired, no matter where, no matter by whom, the shower of bullets poured upon the crowd. A shower of bullets is also a crowd. It is death scattered broadcast. It does not know whither it goes, nor what it does. It kills and passes on. In the twinkling of an eye, there was a butchery on the boulevard a quarter of a league long. Eleven pieces of cannon wrecked the Salanduru's carpet warehouse. The shot tore completely through 28 houses. The baths of Juvence were riddled. There was a massacre at Tortoni's. A whole quarter of Paris was filled with an immense flying mass and with a terrible cry. New Year's Day was not far off. Some shops were full of New Year's gifts. In the passage to Saumon, a child of 13, flying before the platoon firing, hid himself in one of these shops beneath a heap of toys. He was captured and killed. 
Those who had killed him laughingly widened his wounds with their swords. A woman told me, the cries of this poor little fellow could be heard all through the passage. Four men were shot before the same shop. The officer said to them, this will teach you to loaf about. A fifth, named Malare, who was left for dead, was carried the next day with eleven wounds to the Charité. There he died. They fired into the cellars by the air holes. A workman, a courier named Moulin, who had taken refuge in one of those shot-riddled cellars, saw through the cellar air hole a passer-by who had been wounded in the thigh by a bullet, sit down on the pavement with a death rattle in his throat and lean against a shop. Some soldiers who heard this rattle ran up and finished off the wounded man with bayonet thrusts. One brigade killed the passers-by from the Madeleine to the Opera, another from the Opera to the Gymnase, another from the Boulevard Bonne Nouvelle to the Porte Saint-Denis. The 75th of the line having caught the barricade of the Porte Saint-Denis, it was no longer a fight. It was a slaughter. The massacre radiated a word horribly true, from the boulevard into all the streets. It was a devil fish stretching out its feelers. Flight? Why? Concealment? To what purpose? Death ran after you quicker than you could fly. In the Rue Pajavan, a soldier said to a passerby, What are you doing here? I'm going home. The soldier kills the passerby. In the Rue de Marais, they kill four young men in their own courtyard. Colonel Espinasse exclaimed, After the bayonet! Cannon! Colonel Rushford explained, thrust, bleed, slash, and he added, it is an economy of powder and noise. Before Barbadian's establishment, an officer was showing his gun, an arm of considerable precision, admiringly to his comrades, and he said, with this gun I can score magnificent shots between the eyes. Having said this, he aimed at random at someone and succeeded. The carnage was frenzied. At the corner of the Rue de Sontierre, an officer of Spooley, with his sword raised, cried out, This is not the sort of thing you do not understand at all. Fire on the women! A woman was flying. She was with child. She falls. They deliver her by the means of the buttons of the muskets. Another, perfectly distracted, was turning the corner of a street. She was carrying a child. Two soldiers aimed at her. One said, At the woman! And he brought down the woman. The child rolled on the pavement. The other soldier said, Ah, the child! And he killed the child. In the Rue Mandar, there was, stated an eyewitness, a rosary of corpses reaching as far as the Rue Neuve saint eustache and before the house of Audier, 26 corpses, 30 before the Hotel Montmorency, 52 before the Varieté, of whom 11 were women. In the Rue Grange Batelier, there were three naked corpses. Number 19, Faubourg Montmartre, was full of dead and wounded. A woman, flying and maddened with dishevelled hair and her arms raised aloft, ran along the Rue Poissonnière, crying, They kill! They kill! They kill! They kill! They kill! I was anxious to know what I ought to do. Certain treasons, in order to be proved, need to be investigated. I went to the field of murder. I reached the boulevard. The scene was indescribable. I witnessed this crime, this butchery, this tragedy. I saw the rain of blind death. I saw the distracted victims fall about me in the crowd. It is for this that I have signed myself in this book. An eyewitness. Well, we finish with a much more up-to-date report from the Railway Magazine 
of a train journey in the wake of Hurricane Desmond on December the 5th, 2015, as told by and through driver Mick Ingledew. During the week leading up to the storm, Mick got a call from a colleague in the control room. He was advised that the fourth road bridge would be closed because of high winds and ScotRail wanted a higher a high-speed train to back up its services with the expected surge in passenger flow. The control caller told Mick there was no drivers with the Class 67 Carlisle route knowledge, so if he would cover, they could release a Mark IV set for the haulage. And Mick questioned the planning of this and said, have you considered the weather forecast ahead? Isn't it a risky option? As it happened on the Friday evening, the overhead wires were damaged north of Newcastle, all passengers either curtailing their journey or being advised tickets would be valid for the next day, leaving Virgin Trains sorting out hotels for passengers. Saturday came, and despite the usual don't travel unless essential announcements, more passengers arrived at the station. The East Coast line was still closed with some trains stranded for hours. Mick takes up the story. Our option was to divert via Carlisle onto the West Coast route, but Cumbria was in an emergency crisis and getting a battering. No matter, it's my turn to tackle the journey into the unknown, accompanied, authorised by my son and colleague David, who was in for an adventure. It was around five o'clock in the evening when we departed over the King Edward Bridge at Newcastle across the River Tyne, and the signs were there, the Brown River was flowing fast. Flooding was evident. I was stopped and cautioned several times to examine the line, track flooding, embankments, all manner of things. Corbridge, a place I know as a beautiful country town, seemed to be nearly submerged. We battled on to reach Carlisle, only to find out that the West Coast line was now shut too. Flooding had damaged some of the line side and line side equipment. I was told, we need you to run round and head back to Newcastle. However, now there was another problem. We had West Coast passengers boarding the train. I asked why and was told, we've been told they have to go with this service. It was a silly decision and not thought through. How was taking them to the closed East Coast line going to help them? So I have a train of nine coaches, now full and standing, with West Coast passengers heading for no reason to Newcastle, where the East Coast line was still blocked for us to sort out. You couldn't make it up. Hugh Cowan, one of my drivers took over the driving, and I joined the train cold and wet, ready for a brew. About halfway back to Newcastle, the train came to an emergency stand with all sorts of noises underneath the coach. It's a route which is very dark, very few town or city lights, and we'd stopped in a lonely spot called Gooseholm. Finding the emergency halogen light, I climbed down to investigate, seeing Hugh in the distance. A tree with a three-foot diameter trunk had toppled on top of the buffet car, I could hear the eerie creaking sounds of the avenues of trees flanking each side of the railway. After eventually finding a route around the tree, I reached you, and there it was another tree sprawled across the buffers and underneath the train, explaining the noise I'd heard earlier. We managed to get through to Hayden Bridge signal box and get the line shut. This was lucky, as the route had many dead spots for phones. With axe and saw from the emergency equipment cupboard at the ready, both were pretty useless with what we faced, but better than nothing. Hugh and I, twig by twig, branch by branch, finally cleared the buffer area, and the bogey was also intertwined with a tree. 
Crawling under, all the while updating control, the Class 67 driving van trailer and Coach M were now clear of debris. It was now time to tackle the large tree lying across the middle of the train on the buffet. The guard cleared the coaches either side. You contacted the signaller at Hayden Bridge, whose block section it was. He advised that help was on his way, but I knew there was no chance of the help arriving soon, as all the roads on the way to Carlisle and the main route A69 was stopped due to flooding. No one was moving anywhere fast, especially towards us, and we were in possibly the worst location. The sheet rain falling heavily, we were beyond being cold, rain coming down our necks, we battled down but to no avail with the equipment in hand. Urgent measures needed to be taken initially to split the train. Control put me in touch with Bounds Green in London to go through the procedure for splitting a Mark IV set. I've spent 30 plus years on uncoupling but never coaching stock. I said I'd get back to them. Back on the ground, I reevaluated the situation. The tree had fallen at an angle and meant we had to consider if we could safely move in any direction. Hugh and I concluded that moving east towards Newcastle very tentatively was the best option and that's what we attempted. I spoke to Chris at control, we went through our assessment and he consented. At least at less than a snail's pace, Hugh edged the Class 67 locomotive forward as this is where the trunk would interact between the two coaches. The angle had we tried going west meant it might have got wedged. So far, so good. Hugh edged on again as it rubbed against the side of the train until reaching the dead Class 91 at the rear where we paused the movement. Just to explain, the Class 91 is an electric locomotive and they're not on an electric line, which is why they've got a diesel at the other end. Then, very carefully, Hugh started to move the train again and as I thought, the tree catapulted free with a swoosh like a medieval weapon. We've done it! We're free! Back in touch with Control, it sounded like a successful space mission in the background. Cheers of delight. Hugh, bless him, continued the driving at extreme caution back to Newcastle. I got in the train, not the cab. However, more challenges now existed and were about to face me. We were carrying a few passengers who were now two days behind their schedule and the main concern was essential medication needed for some of them. I got a call from Louise Rutherford at Newcastle, one of our customer ambassadors, asking if she could help. Indeed you can, I said. I then explained the medication issues with an urgent need to get them home quickly and agreed for taxis to be waiting at the West End Dock, a staff area. With the onboard team, including Claire and Peter, doing a fine job looking after all the very patient passengers, it was also the moment I made my first and last ever announcement on the public address. It seemed to go down a treat, not scripted. I just said how it was. Arriving into Newcastle in the small hours, Louise and her loyal staff were there and went the extra mile, dealt with hundreds of passengers needing hotels. It was a great bonus night for the hospitality industry in Newcastle and beyond as the city couldn't accommodate everyone. Meanwhile, those with medical needs were dealt with as a priority. My son David, who also works on the railway, was so impressed seeing his dad effectively going beyond the call of duty and starting to fully appreciate what happens when you get called out and how you sort the problem. Hugh deserves considerable praise too, and I nominated him for recognition. Nothing ever came of it. 
I later found out I'd also been nominated by the control team in Louise, but we were pipped at the post by a member of staff at Doncaster for fixing an IT issue. <laughs> That's life on the railway. I took to sleeping in the spare bedroom when I was on call, as over the years many a disturbed night's sleep became unfair on my long-suffering wife. One night my mobile rung just before one o'clock in the morning. It was Jenny Clare, shift duty manager. She said, Mick, our driver at Aberdeen has admitted himself into the Aberdeen infirmary. We have no driver for the 752 Aberdeen to King's Cross. I paused. So what would you like me to do, Jenny? She replied. How far is Aberdeen from Newcastle? Do you think you can help? I responded, mm, Aberdeen is 250 miles from Newcastle. I can only do my best, send a taxi in 30 minutes. This gave me a chance to shower and liven up. The problem was it was winter, road conditions were horrendous. Despite this, the taxi driver was one of those who preferred to use the cruise control to adjust the speed of the car. It was annoying me intently, so I asked him to resist several times, and in the end it was, use your bloody foot brake, which got the message through. Snow flurries persisting. We forged on north, but I insisted he took a break on the Edinburgh periphery, which he did, grabbing a coffee. Over the fourth road bridge, in a blizzard enhanced by the gales coming from the east, we entered more tranquil weather conditions, making the journey a lot more pleasurable, and nearly seven hours later, I arrived at Aberdeen Station. My train was on the depot, entailing a shunt and change of ends to platform it. All I wanted was a coffee, but nothing was open. The HST gallery galley was also closed. George King, my train manager, promised me a coffee and bacon roll at Stonehaven, and it was thankfully received. I was revived. I was always glad to be in the driving seat of the Intercity 125, taking me to Newcastle, and feeling proud of myself, providing customer service. However, by 2015, the requirements for management were becoming too divorced from what they were had originated from, in my opinion. I couldn't see a future for me and was aware several colleagues who were a little bit older decided it was time to go and opted for early retirement. In many respects, it was a sad loss. I re-entered the driving grade with, to my knowledge, no rebuke from those drivers I'd managed for many years, so my return to driving as a driver was with ease and satisfaction. Listening to the Witnesses of History podcast with Jeff Lumley. The music was by Eric Matthias. www.soundimage.org.